still need prep school teachers. And number two, we've got trips going to the Middle East for Bible lands tours. And that will always give you new perspectives on what the Scripture says and opens your eyes to a lot of things. For those of you who are live streaming tonight, if indeed the live stream is working, uh, we have a number of brave people here tonight who braved the elements because we had some pretty strong storms coming through here. In fact, uh, by the time I looked up from my computer and realized that all of a sudden it was thunder and lightning, it was uh, when I looked at the radar, I thought, hmm, might be wise to cancel class. Oops, it's 6.15, it's too late. So we're here. We are the faithful few who made it, swam here, or any, something by any other conveyance. So we're here to look at Psalm 89. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We need to be in right relationship with the Lord. We need to make sure we are walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, walking by means of the truth, abiding in Christ. All of those are synonyms in the Scripture for maintaining our a close relationship with the Lord. And when we sin, that is broken, but we simply admit or acknowledge sin and instantly we are restored to fellowship. We recover our walk by the Spirit so that we may uh, grow and mature and serve the Lord faithfully. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful we can come together this evening to be refreshed by your word, to be encouraged and strengthened, to come to understand you better, your plan for history better, the way in which you work to bring about our so great salvation through the line of David, understanding your faithfulness, your loyalty to those with whom you have entered into covenant, and Father, to understand the significance of this that you stand by your promises no matter how unfaithful uh, we may be. And Father, we pray as we study tonight, you'll help us to understand these tremendous thoughts that have been uh, penned for us under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, that we might be encouraged and strengthened even today in our spiritual life. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, and we will begin when we get into our study about verse 21. But the focus in this section from 21 to 33, if God is willing and we make it that far, is again on the faithfulness of God. And again, we see this word chesed several times. Sometimes it's translated mercy, sometimes loving kindness. It's God's loyal love. And it emphasizes God's faithfulness. So you have this 
these two words, chesed and emunah, which we have studied as we've gone through this, that emphasize that God, yes? That's okay. I don't know how that happened, but you can go out there and figure it out. Thank you. That's one thing I can't do with that is turn the lights off. They should have been on automatic and just gone off. But Okay, so we're looking at God's loyalty to his word, loyalty to his covenant, and even in the spite of failure, God remains faithful. And that just is a theme that runs through this entire, entire psalm. It is a reflection on the Davidic covenant, but it's more than simply a reflection or a meditation. It is actually a prayer. It is designed to uh, call God in prayer to act and intervene on behalf of the Davidic dynasty on the basis of his promises in his uh, covenant. So we have looked at what the Bible teaches about the Davidic covenant, and I'm just putting this chart back up here because I want to remind you of what is said in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning down around verse 12 or so, God gives the core of this covenant to David. And there's basically three elements that are developed in the Davidic covenant in uh, 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16, that God will establish an eternal house. The context was David wanted to build a house for God, and uh, God says, no, uh, that's not my plan for you, but I will build a house for you. And by that he meant a dynasty, a ruling dynasty that would rule over his people Israel. Second, it involved an eternal kingdom, and that the kingdom of Israel, as uh, per the uh, covenant with Abraham and now with David, this kingdom would go on not just through the millennial kingdom, but on into eternity. And then third, that there would be an eternal throne, and that would mean a ruler that sat on that throne, the throne being a metaphor for the ruler, the administration uh, of that kingdom. What's interesting, if we were to go back and take the time to go back and look at Second Samuel chapter 7, is that a lot of what is said in Psalm 89 from verse 21 down to verse uh, 26 is not really stated in the covenant, per se, in Second Samuel chapter 7. So this is new information or in ad- additional information about uh, what undergirds that covenant. And then when we, when we get down to verse uh, 26, there are going to be statements that expand a little bit on similar statements that are in the covenant. But this is just to remind you of the core covenant in Second Samuel seven twelve to 16. Now let's remember where, where we are in the outline or structure of Psalm 89. Psalm 89 has 54 verses. You just can't run through that very quickly, especially when you have some of the things like the whole issue with Rahab that we study just to understand it and to be able to track down these these metaphors. I've read too many people who just throw out an interpretation without having done all of the work, and even though they might get close, they don't quite get it in the black inner circle of the target. 
So the first 18 verses focus on the character of God. When we talk about the faith rest drill, we're always grounding it on the character of God, the essence of God. In fact, as we get even get into this passage, it's going to talk again about uh, by God's name, and that indicates by his essence. So it's important to understand the essence, the attributes of God. Not only is God lo- God's love and faithfulness emphasized at the beginning, but also his omnipotence, his might, his power. So uh, all of that is important, lays the groundwork for the eventual petition. Then in the second division, which is where we are, God promises, God's promise to David becomes the foundation for understanding the psalmist's petition. So it, it tells us that if we really want to have well-crafted prayers, we have to have a thorough understanding of the Scripture. We have to have it just, just be part of our soul. If you remember last year when we were studying through worship, and I read to you some of the things that were written in the uh, little book on the private devotions of Sir Lancelot Andrews, and that in the copy that I had, each line in those prayers that he wrote, there's a scripture reference in about six-point type off to the side, but it would tell you that he was so saturated with all of the scripture, so much that he had memorized and was in his soul that he, his prayers, his devotions were just Bible verses. He was just praying God's word back to him. And this just shows the richness of his spiritual life. And I was in a conversation in the last couple of weeks with some people about music and pointing out that when you have, a few, have generations of mature believers that dominate a culture, and by that I mean men not only like Lancelot Andrews, but many of the Puritan pastors over the 17th century, all the way up to Isaac Watts and many in the 1700s as well as 1800s. And you read just the lyrics of the good hymns, the really great hymns, you see the richness of their spiritual life. You compare that to about 99.9% of contemporary Christian poetry, and you just see how shallow and superficial most Christians are today. We have shallow, superficial contemporary music because we have shallow, superficial Christians today. It reflects uh, the fact that the spiritual life of modern Christians in America is pretty anemic, and this is a, a major problem. So you can't produce great literature if you don't have people who understand what great literature is because they've been exposed to great literature and they think deep thoughts. Same thing with music and and poetry. So this is a real problem. We see how the psalmist here goes back and he is putting into poetic form uh, thoughts under divine inspiration, thoughts about the the, um, uh, covenant with David. So that's 19 to 37. So we spent a couple of weeks looking at Uh, bringing us up to 1920. Last time I talked about David as a man after God's own heart, the essence of humility. And this time, that's sort of 1920. That's the starting point, introduction to this section. And then we'll get down. We won't make it all the way to 37 tonight uh, just because it's almost impossible no matter how fast you go to get there to cover anything substantive. And then next time we'll finish it up. And we'll look at the petition. And God is petitioned 
to remain faithful to his promises. And the things that are said here don't quite fit any historical situation. There may be some hyperbole here, or he may be thinking under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, of something yet future that would uh, come to Israel that would truly threaten the uh, monarchy, which it did in 586 B.C. when they were conquered by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, the king was the second to last king is carted off to as a prisoner to to uh, Babylon. Uh, it looks like it's all over with. So it's a great prayer because many times in life we think things are it's all over with. Things have happened. We think that's it. That's over with. We look out at the contemporary events. We can't see hope for the future. But even in the darkness of contemporary life, there's hope because God is still on His throne. God still still rules. So we look at these basic elements of the faith rest drill to claim a promise, to think through the rationales in the promise, and to appropriate the doctrinal conclusion. So what we're seeing here in this section is that middle step, step two, thinking, um, or the first step, thinking through the promise of the Davidic covenant and thinking through in step two the rationales that are embedded there. That's all part of this, this second section. So what we see here is the last part of um, in, 19, in 21 to, to 37 makes up three sections. The first section is God's choice. He says he finds David. His eyes are searching to and fro on the earth, looking for someone totally committed to him. God chooses David to be his anointed king, 19 and 20. And then in 21 to 25, we see God's promise to David to protect, preserve, and bless David. We'll see five things that God promises in that section from 21 to 25. Then in under 3b, we'll see God promised an intimate relationship with David uh, through an eternal covenant, and that's in verses 26 to 29, and there'll be three things there that we look at. And then in the last part, in verses 30 to 37, God reiterates the fact that this is an eternal, unconditional covenant that no matter how much failure there will be among David's descendants and there will be failure, that God would not annul his covenant. He won't cancel it, and it will, uh, he will always be faithful to it. So we'll look now at this first promise in 89.21. God promises that his omnipotence, his strength, his character, his essence is what will stabilize and strengthen David. David, In the New King James, it says, with whom, the whom refers back to uh, David in verse 21, the anointed one, his servant David in verse 20, and he says, with whom my hand shall be established and my arm shall strengthen him. So it is with his arm, or excuse me, with his hand that he's established, and with his arm he'll be strengthened. So the two verbs are established and strengthened, and these have been translated different ways by some different translations. We need to look at those verbs, they're important. We understand from our past studies that when it talks about hand and arm, it's talking about God's power, God's omnipotence. They're, they are... Uh, anthropomorphisms to express the power, the omnipotence, 
the might of God. So, Psalm 8920, TNK stands for the Tanakh. This is the Hebrew, this is Jewish Publication Society translation of 1918. The T is for the Torah, the law of the first five books of Moses. The N is for the Nevi'im, the prophets, and that includes the early prophets as well as the latter prophets. And then K is the Ketuvim, or the writings, and that's uh, the the um, uh, wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, uh, Daniel. These are all part of the writings, the wisdom, the wisdom literature. So the Tanakh translates it, my hand shall be constantly with him. Now, what they pick up that's positive is constantly. The, the sense of the Hebrew verb is it, this is something that is continual. It's not just he will be established as a one-shot deal. He will continue to be. So that's positive. My arm shall strengthen him. The second is um, is from, I didn't have that marked down. I think that is from the New American Standard. That's usually the one I, I, I look to. With whom my hand shall be established, mine arm also shall, uh, shall strengthen him. And then the last one is the way I have translated it. My hand will constantly stabilize him, and my arm will strengthen him. It's a, an ongoing act of God uh, stabilizing, uh, stabilizing David. The verb there translated established is the Hebrew word kun. Establish is one of its meanings, one of the English words used to translate it. It has the idea of making something firm, making it stable, uh, preparing it. The New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis lists stable, secure, something that is lasting, something that is durable. These are the ideas that are present in something that is established. God establishes a foundation. That means it's not going to be shaken. So that's the idea here. God's power, his omnipotence, uh, will continuously stabilize David. He is the the ground on which David stands so that his he will not be shaken in his spiritual life and that the covenant itself in his reign will not be shaken because God is the one who stabilizes him. The second line, also my arm shall strengthen him. This is the Hebrew word amatz. It is in the PL stem, which means it's intensive. So it intensifies the basic uh, cow meaning, and it's the idea of being strong, being alert, being bold, being courageous, God is going to, it it has to do with his mental attitude. God is going to strengthen David's mental attitude. He will have courage and boldness because of his relationship with God. God is the one who will, uh, who will strengthen him. And this also has, carries with it ideas of protection, ideas of defense. It has the idea of protecting and defending him mentally from whatever assaults, doubts are thrown his way, hostility, whenever anything like that uh, threaten him, threatens him. Excuse me. Now, when we see these words, kun and amatz, it takes us back to an earlier part of the psalm. I think this is fascinating how this is constructed, that when we go through those first uh, 18 verses, 
we talked about the essence of God, his power. There are a lot of different words that are used. And many of those words and statements are now picked up again in this section that's dealing with what God promised he would do for David. And so we see that it transfers from God's essence, that he is the one who establishes all things. So uh, we have this metaphor of arm and hand and right hand in Psalm 89, 13. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand and high as your right hand. So the psalmist is thinking about God's omnipotence, and he expresses uh, and talks about that omnipotence in Psalm 89, 13, and it comes out of a preceding section from about verse 8 to 12 that talks about God's power in his creation. And this is sort of a summary verse. summary uh, statement there. So it emphasizes his omnipotence as part of his attributes. And now in the second section of the, uh, of the psalm, it applies it to God, the way, the, his ability to establish and, and stabilize David. If God was able to create the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and you look at the magnificence of the universe and all of the stars and galaxies and and the solar system, and all of the things that go into it, and all of the macrocosm down to the microcosm. And if God is able to do all that by just speaking it into existence, then there's nothing that David's going to face that God can't solve, that that God doesn't have the power to handle. And so you see how the, the thinking of the writer can influence our thinking when we're facing challenges and problems. We think about the essence of God, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and then we can apply that to a particular situation. Also, in verse 14, we have the phrase, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, mercy and truth, that's hesed, and here it's emet, it's not emuna. So emet has more the idea of truth rather than than faithfulness, but they both come from the same uh, same. Uh, vocabulary, the same cognates. So it's God's omnipotence that secures this. In verse 8, the psalmist says, O Lord God of hosts, and that's interesting, it's Yahweh Elohim Tzabaoth. So it has Yahweh and Elohim together. I don't know if you noticed this as you were reading through Haggai on Sunday morning when Jim was teaching, how many times Haggai addresses the Lord as Yahweh Tzabaoth, the Lord of the armies. Why is that? What is significant about that title for focusing us on an attribute of God? It emphasizes his might and his power because he's the God of, of the armies, of the angels, of all the hosts. And and the psalmist says, who is mighty like you, O God? Your faithfulness always surrounds you. So the emphasis is on God's omnipotence again, that he's more powerful, he's more mighty than than anything that we can possibly imagine. He's the God who created all things. He's the God, remember the whole thing with his defeat of Rahab. He's the God who brought order out of chaos in the angelic revolt. He's the God who laid the foundation of the earth. Certainly he can stabilize us and he can provide for our our security, and our happiness. So that's the first promise. That first promise focuses on the fact that God is going to establish and stabilize David. And the second promise, that comes in verses 22 and 23. 
God will further explain this as protection from David's enemies. So verses 22 and 23 are the consequence of the promise in verse uh, 21. 21 says, my hand will will, uh, strengthen you or stabilize you, and my arm will, will, will strengthen you. So this, is, this goes in then into a result of that. And the result of that, he says in the text, the enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And then when we get to verse uh, 23, I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. That's not quite the meaning in the Hebrew. Uh, Just uh, limitations on their knowledge of Hebrew when they translated the King James. And what we see here, the two verbs are outwit, which isn't bad, but it can be refined, and afflict. And then we have the phrase son of wickedness. It's not wickedness in the Hebrew, as we'll see. It's really the son of violence, the violent one. So, the enemy shall not outwit him. This is the verb on the left, shua. It is a hiphil, which is a causative stem. So, it's the idea the enemy shall not cause him to be deceived. That's the idea there, is he's going to be outwitted or deceived. And it's also related to a, uh, a word that is sometimes translated uh, in, in something that is done in vain, like taking the Lord's name in vain. What you know, Remember that command? We covered this a couple of times. It doesn't mean to use the name of Jesus or the name of God in some sort of a curse statement. It is when you say you swear an oath in the name of God, or you say, as God is my witness, and, and it's followed by a lie. When you're claiming God spoke to me and God told me to do X, Y, or Z, and God did no such thing. It is using God's name in a trivial or light manner in order to deceive people, in order to uh, convince them that, that, that God is backing your play. So that's the idea here. The enemy shall not deceive him. Why? Because God's God is stabilizing him. God is strengthening him. The enemy shall not deceive him, nor the son of violence. The parallel. Remember, we have synonymous parallelism here. So the enemy is the son of violence. Remember, we study these Hebrew idioms where they, they think concretely about a lot of uh, characteristics of a person. So if you are a violent person, then that adjective, that attribute characterizes you, so you are a son of violence. If you're a murderer, you're called a son of a murderer. That doesn't mean your daddy was a murderer. It means that you exhibit in your life those characteristics. If you are destructive and wild and rebellious and you get thrown in jail for being drunk or drugs or whatever over and over again, you are a, an SOB. You are a son of Belial. Belial is a term for destruction. And you are a son of destruction. It doesn't mean your father was destructive. It means you exhibit the characteristics of that noun. So if you are the son of God, that's an idiom for the fact that you are God, you are deity. 
If you are the son of man, that emphasizes the fact that you are a human being. You, are, you, ex, you exhibit those, those attributes. So the enemy shall not deceive him, nor the son of violence, which is his enemy, uh, humiliate him. That's the verb anah, which means to oppress or to humiliate, humiliate through deception. And so there are going to be examples in the Davidic line of kings who will be deceived by idolatry. They will be deceived by the promises of the king in the north. I'm thinking about uh, Ahab and Jezebel and the introduction of Baal worship and the Asheron. This deceives the southern kingdom. But that's not going to happen to David because God's power is lifting him up and strengthening him. These others that come along of his sons fit the category when we get into the cursing later on in, in, in the chapter. There's going to be a section where we get into verse, um, uh, down into verse, verse 30, 30, if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my statutes, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, that's the cursing section. This first section from uh, 21 down through 20, 29 is expressing the positives, the way God is going to bless the Davidic seed. So in verse, uh, then we have the last part of this as I've translated it. The enemy shall not deceive him, nor the son of violence humiliate him. He is going to rule. He's not going to be defeated. He's not going to have to pay tribute to foreign kings. He is going to establish the, the high watermark of the kingdom, the Jewish kingdom, in the Old Testament. Now, how is God going to do this? Well, this is explained in verse 23. I will beat down his foes before his face, and plague those, plague those who hate him. And these, again, are interesting words. The word for uh, beating down is the word on the left on the screen. It's katat. It means to beat, to crush, to grind down. And it is used uh, about the golden calf in Deuteronomy 9.21, that it's just melted down and completely destroyed and ground up. I will beat down his foes. So God's going to completely defeat them, crush them, grind them down. And then the next word translated as plague isn't plague at all. It is the Hebrew word nagaf, which simply means to strike down or to smite down. And so this is what God's promise is, is on the basis of his power. On the one hand, he is going to uh, allow David not to be deceived and humiliated. On the other hand, he's going to grind up David's enemies, which happened in David's lifetime, and he's going to plague those who hate him. When we get back into Second Samuel in a couple of weeks, we're going to come to Second Samuel nine and and ten, and in there we have. Well, we'll go over those chapters pretty quickly because it's basically a list of all of the enemies that David defeated. So it's just a. Uh, almost a grocery list of his conquests, uh, so we'll we'll move that pretty move through that pretty quickly, uh, I, and so David is going to uh, defeat his enemies because of God's power uh, to over him. 
The NET Bible translates it very well. It says, I will crush his enemies before him, and I will strike down those who hate him. And we do see an example of this in terms of David's uh, seed later on. The greatest king in the Davidic line in the Old Testament after the breakup of the kingdom, the greatest king of Judah was Hezekiah. Hezekiah failed in some ways, but Hezekiah is considered the greatest king next to David or Solomon because he destroyed all the high places. He destroyed all the idol worship. He, uh, he had the temple uh, cleansed, and he reinstituted the Passover, which had not been observed um, in many years. And there were many years that went by in Israel in the Old Testament where they didn't observe the Passover, and they forgot all about it. They didn't know what it was about, and so he brought all of that back and reestablished the temple worship and reestablished, reorganized the priesthood and reorganized the worship in the temple. But his greatest challenge was when uh, the Assyrian invasion occurred and Sennacherib came down and there were sieges to to many cities and that lasted a long time. One of the most famous is Lachish because of the, uh, the, the, uh, engravings that were made uh, that some of you have been to Israel, you've seen. The, the, the original, I believe, is in, in the museum in Tur- Turkey in Istanbul, but you have a, a, um, a replica there in the Israel Museum, and it's just phenomenal to look at that. And the, the, all the siege engines and everything that was used. So uh, Sennacherib had it, uh, Jerusalem surrounded, and then one night... The angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people woke up the next morning, there were corpses everywhere. And so Sennacherib woke up, sent his aide-de-camp out to see what was going on, and he came back and said, everybody's dead but us. And so they went away and went home, and it wasn't long after he returned to Nineveh that his sons um, executed a queue a a coup against him and had him assassinated. So God is going shows how he destroys and crushes the enemies of, of uh, the line of David. So we come now to the uh, third promise. Third promise is in verse 24 in the first part of verse 24 that God states that the basis for his defending David what has just been described in the previous three verses, that the basis is going to be God's faithfulness, his emuna again, and his loyal love, his chesed. So that's how uh, we again see those words brought in from the beginning of the, of the psalm. There's a couple of other things that show up in this section that take us back to the first four or five verses in the psalm. Psalm 89.24 reads, but my faithfulness, that is my amuna, and my mercy, my loyal love, my covenant loyal love, my chesed, shall be with him. And in my name, that is, we know what that idiom means, in my, on the basis of my essence, on the basis of my character, uh, his horn, that is his kingdom, his power, horn uh, represented power, the horn of an animal, was that with which he was able to defeat his enemies. So it came to be a metaphor for power and might and the establishment of the kingdom. He says, in my name that is on the basis of my essence, uh, his horn 
shall be uh, established. But that's this exalted. But that will that's the second part. That's the next point. So we're just looking at the first part. The statement: My faithfulness and my mercy shall be uh, shall be with him. This takes us back to the beginning, first verse in the psalm. I will sing of the mercies. I will sing of the chesed, the loyal love of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your imuna, your faithfulness to all generations. And then again in Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy, that is chesed, and truth, emmet. Another form of the word focusing on truth is that which is the foundation for stability go before your face. That is, they represent who you are. That's the third promise. The fourth promise comes up in the second half of the verse. In my name, his horn shall be exalted. God's purpose is to demonstrate the utter necessity of his presence and his power that it is in his name and his name alone on the basis of his character, his essence, and his essence alone that the David's kingdom and David's dynasty is going to be established. It is the person, the attributes of Yahweh that will go before David and give him the victory. The, the victory is the Lord. The battle cry of David against Goliath is that the battle is the Lord's. And so the Lord is the one who's going to give him uh, that victory because of God's power in his life. So this is Psalm uh, 89, 24. But my faithfulness, my mercy shall be with him, and in my name his horn shall be exalted. This phrase, our horn, also goes back to the earlier section, that introductory section focusing on the essence of God, where the psalmist focusing on God's glory says, in your favor, our horn, our kingdom, our power is exalted. So it's on the basis of God's essence once again. Now we come to the uh, fifth promise. God promised to expand David's territory and control over the sea and the rivers. At this point, there, there's a certain sense in a number of these statements where I think that there is a, an, an, an illusion. I don't know if they're directly messianic, but they certainly apply to David's greatest son, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So here it's simply the promise that I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers, that he's going to expand David's territory, which certainly happened under David's reign. But if you remember the promise to Abraham that related to the Abrahamic uh, covenant, the promise to the land, that the borders would be the river of Egypt, which is not the Nile, but is the Wadi El Arish, which is down in the northwest uh, of the Sinai, that from there to the river Euphrates and from the Mediterranean Sea. So this whole section that would take in today a lot of Lebanon and Syria, Jordan as well as Israel is all in this, in this territory. And that eventually, you know, David never fulfilled that. He conquered about maybe 75% of it, 
but it's the Lord Jesus Christ who's going to fully conquer it when he comes to establish his kingdom, and he will set David on the throne in Jerusalem, and the Lord will be ruling over all of the earth, and David will be the prince that rules over Israel in his resurrection body. This is also uh, alludes to part of what God says in the setup for the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7.10, where God said, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. So where is this place? It's the place that Abraham was promised, the land uh, between the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and the river, the river Euphrates. So again, we see these great promises. Now that wraps up this second part of the of this this last section from going from verse 19 uh, down to verse 25. Now in verse 26 to 29, God's going to make three statements that promise an intimate relationship with Himself. Not only is His power going to establish David, not only is He's going to as, as expand David's borders, not. Only is he going to give uh, David the ability to defeat all of his enemies and not be defeated by them or or be humiliated by them by paying tribute or something of that nature. But now God is going to ratchet it up even more, and part of the covenant is to promise a more intimate relationship between David and himself. So there's three things that we're going to see here. In verse 26, that David will acknowledge that Yahweh is his father in a much more intimate sense than uh, than is used in the Old Testament. He's his God, and he's the rock of his salvation. Then in verse 27, God promises to make David his firstborn. Now, we've been studying on Sunday morning about inheritance, and I pointed out a couple of weeks back when we were studying that in the Old Testament you have the principle of the older serving the younger in God's plan. In human tradition, it's the law of primogenitor, where the first, the one who is born first chronologically is the one who would get the primary inheritance. That was normal. But in the ancient world, a father could designate some other son as the firstborn. It's a title. It doesn't mean first in order. When we get into the New Testament, Jesus is called the firstborn. It doesn't have anything to do with being born or first. It's a, it is a word that indicates preeminence, the one who receives the double portion of the inheritance. And as I pointed out before, Ishmael's first in time, he was born before Isaac, but Isaac becomes the heir He is the firstborn. And then Isaac, through Rebekah, has twins. Esau comes first, and then Jacob. But Jacob is the designated heir. He's the younger, but the elder, Esau, will serve the younger. So uh, Jacob is the one who gets the double portion. 
And then among uh, Jacob's 12 sons, Reuben is the firstborn, but he does not get the, uh, the firstborn blessing. That goes to Joseph. He's designated the firstborn. He gets the double portion. And so it goes through his line and, uh, and down in that way. So you have these, these different statements where the one of the sons is designated the preeminent one, so God promises to make David his firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. It is a title that is reminiscent of the fact that Jesus will be called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But this applies to David in the kingdom that he will reign and he will have a position that is above all the other kings of the earth in the millennial kingdom. And then the third statement is that God declared that this covenant with David would be eternal. And that's in 89, 28 uh, to 29, that this is emphasizing that it cannot be broken, it cannot be annulled. It is a covenant that is that will endure forever. So let's look at this first statement. David will acknowledge Yahweh as his father, God, father comma, God, comma, and the rock of his salvation. Psalm 89.26 says, He shall cry to me. God is speaking about David. David shall cry to me. You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. So the Lord is establishing a special with relationship with David, that the David, David will refer to the Lord as his father. This was often found in covenants in the ancient world, where the king would designate an heir that uh, by adoption, and so he would become uh, adopted at the time of of his uh, of his coronation. So that this is what's happening here. It has it's a a very strong royal concept, indicating God has adopted David, and God is uh, God is his heir. God is his is his portion. And so there's a special relationship with God as his father. He is his God, and he is the rock of his salvation. Now, this is a term that we find many times, but what's interesting is if you do a, a word study, you'll discover that this phrase, God is the rock, well, it's used many times in the Psalms. It goes back to, to Deuteronomy. Uh, but it also, this whole statement is reminiscent of Second Samuel seven fourteen a I will be his, where God says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. So it's expanded in Psalm 89, 26 and in uh, 27. This is uh, very helpful. Deuteronomy 32, in this one chapter, as Moses is giving his final sermon to the Jewish people, he prays to God. He says, he is the rock. Notice he, he, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous or, and upright is he. Now, he says God is a rock. He's not talking about going out here somewhere and finding a rock that you can hold in your hand. This is the idea of an enormous uh, rock outcropping, a, a huge boulder that, that would be beyond anybody's ability to lift. And it points to God as, as immovable. 
He is unshakable. It's a metaphor for his uh, his st- faithfulness, his stability, and it comes not only to where it is uh, used in sort of a metaphor here, but it becomes a name for God in in Deuteronomy 32 as well as in the Psalms. And we see this in verse 18, the, the bottom verse. Of the rock who begot you. See, he just calls God the rock. He does say, oh, God, the rock begot you. He just says, the rock begot you. You are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. And then in verse 30, he says, how could one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless, these are the way they won their battles. They were overpowered. They were outmanned, outgunned, outmaneuvered by many armies. And here uh, Moses says, unless their rock had sold them. So again, he's just calling God the rock. He, he, we worship the rock. I think this is what Jesus is talking about when he asked uh, Peter, he said, well, who do men say that I am? And some said, some of the disciples said, well, some people think you're Elijah and some Elisha and some John the Baptist. And he says to Peter, well, who do you say that I am? And Jesus said, you are the Messiah, the Christ of God. And Jesus says, on this rock, I'll build my church. And some people think that he's talking about what Peter said or he's talking about Peter. No, Jesus is talking about he's the Messiah. He is God on that rock is what he'll build his church on. He's the rock. He's the stumbling stone. He's the cornerstone. So he's talking about himself. So rock is a name for God, which would apply to the Father and the Son. Deuteronomy 32, 31, for their rock, talking about the gods of the pagans, the Canaanites, their rock is not like our rock. He's different. He's one of a kind. Then we get into the Psalms, and we have passages like Psalm 18, 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. He's my rock. That's the first thing listed. Psalm 18.31, again, for who is God except the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? And then finally, at the end of Psalm 18, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock, let the God of my salvation be exalted. This is a great, great psalm to be familiar with. So God is his father. Uh, he's a more intimate relationship. He's the rock of his salvation. And then in verse 27, God promised to make him his firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so in verse 27, he says, I will appoint him to be my firstborn son, the most exalted of the earth's kings. And that word for firstborn is the Hebrew word bakor, which means... Uh, the firstborn. It's the one who has the birthright, who receives the uh, double portion, the double inheritance. The first to be identified as God's firstborn was the nation. In Exodus 4.22, when Moses, uh, God is instructing David, I mean, excuse me, Moses is what he will say to Pharaoh. He says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So now David, the ruler of of the firstborn nation is designated the one who has the double portion, the double inheritance. And then the third point, uh, third statement God makes in terms of establishing an intimate relationship with himself 
is that he declares that this covenant with David is going to be eternal. In these two verses, Psalm 89, 28, and 29, again, the psalmist goes back using these, our favorite words, chesed and emunah, my mercy, that is my chesed, I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also, see, he had promised what? He had promised to David a uh, eternal uh, seed, kingdom, throne, I mean eternal house, that's the seed, and that goes back to the promise to Abraham of a seed, descendants. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. So this clearly is now picking up more language that was in the immediate context of Second Samuel uh, 12, uh, 7, 12 through uh, 16. And also reminds us the fact that it is, I will keep for him forever in verse 28, repeats forever again in verse 29, and compares it to the days of heaven. So this isn't, sometimes the word olam, as it's translated as, as can be just a long time. But in other passages, it's clear from parallel uh, phrases that it means forever. It's, it's forever as the days of heaven without end. And it takes us back to Psalm 89, 1 through 4. Notice here you have three times the word forever is used and two times it is in synonymous parallelism to a phrase, uh, uh, Lador Vador. Dor is the word for generations, and it means from generation to generation ad infinitum. So I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generation, from generation to generation without end. Mercy shall be built up forever. Then down in verse 4, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. So this brings it to an end, those three uh, statements promising an in intimate relationship with God through an eternal covenant. And then next time we'll come back and just look at the last part, starting in verse uh, 30, that God's promises would never be canceled though they would be hindered by sin and disobedience. So what we covered tonight from 21 to 29 focuses on God's blessing. And then we're going to see that there's going to be discipline. So there's going to be judgment on the house of David for disobedience, but he will not cancel or annul the covenant. So that's a good place to break. We'll come back next time and we'll cover that. That won't take as long and we will get into the main petition as we finish up the psalm. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to be reminded of your faithfulness, your faithful, loyal love, your loyalty to David is exhibited in the greatness of the dynasty that he established, culminating in our Lord Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, born in Bethlehem, the city of David, and he claimed to be the king of the Jews as the son of David. And Father, gives us great hope to know that you are true to your word. You work things out in history. And as a result of that, when we face trials, challenges, chaos in our lives, it is you that stabilizes us. It is you that brings us 
uh, strength and ability and courage in our souls to be able to face the challenges and the problems that we face in life and to surmount them on the basis of your power and your promises. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.